0: Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay for this? All right. Well, if you could guess through the songs, probably know that we're going to preach on Christ and suffering tonight. But turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1 if you're not already there. And we'll move on to the next section. But uh, this morning in Sunday school, we talked about Christ in the Old Testament. And we had a little bit of a debate about whether or not Christ is actually in. Every single passage, every single verse, every single sentence, every single phrase, every single word. We had a debate about that. But Philippians is a book about Christ. You find the title Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. You can check me on this. I think about 42 times in four small chapters. So this book is about Christ. And that's who we'll be talking about tonight. And it's clear. But what leads us up to this passage where we just read tonight? Last week we opened up with Paul's prayer for the Philippians. And we saw how he, how gospel partners pray for each other. We saw how they prayed for each other. And we're moving on tonight to Paul's ministry report. This is where Paul gives his report of his circumstances to the Philippian believers. So that's the whole section right there that we just read tonight is Paul's ministry report. Or you could call it his gospel progress report. But where does it fit in the main theme? Last week we mentioned that the main theme of Philippians is... Unity through humility for a joyful gospel partnership. So you have unity and it happens through humility, and it's all for the purpose of a joyful gospel partnership. So where does that fit tonight? If I can find the remote. Alright, there we go. Where does this passage fit in that theme tonight? Paul is dropping a bomb on the Philippians' understanding of the situation. They see him, he's in prison. They're concerned about him, rightly so, but he wants to tell them that, hey, my circumstances are not nearly as bad as you think. In fact, my circumstances have caused or directly led to the progress of the gospel, and I'm joyful about that. My suffering circumstances, my imprisonment have led to the progress of the gospel. So Paul's dropping his bomb on them, saying, hey, you guys' perspective, I want you to know that, no, I'm not upset. I'm not in misery I'm actually joyful because God's given me all kinds of opportunities to present the gospel. So that's where it fits here. It's how his partnership has contributed to the gospel. How Paul's partnership has contributed to the progress of the gospel. And what he says here in this passage is going to be key for your understanding of how he exhorts us in the next passage. He's laying a foundation. He's building a foundation He doesn't have a lot of exhortation for for the Philippians in this passage, but everything he says here is to build a case for the exhortations that are going to follow. So it's a key passage. This word progress, this word progress. If you think of like someone blazing a trail, cutting away the brush, cutting ahead of time as he walks through to blaze the trail for the gospel, or like a military steadily advancing against the enemy, this is gospel progress. True progress is making its way forward through unexpected means. So we want to ask the question, how does Paul define progress in the gospel? Or you could use another word. How is he how does he define success in his gospel partnership? How does he determine that? What's his uh, measuring rod? How does what's what are his standards? How does Paul define progress? That's our question tonight, and that's what we want to answer. But what can give you joy as we apply this passage and as we take this passage home with us tonight, what can you give you joy and As you see the gospel progress and your partnership. How do you know if you're having success in in your contributions to the ministry? How do you know if you're having progress? This is what he's reporting. This is what I want you to get tonight. So that you'll know that you are having progress in your participation in the gospel. I want you to make the preaching and exaltation of Christ the standards of a successful gospel partnership. The preaching and exaltation of Christ will be those the guideposts to mark your way to see if you are having true success in ministry. Two simple things, at least in concept, they're very simple. Preaching Christ, proclaiming Christ, and seeing him exalted in your ministry. Those two have to be there for progress to be actually successful. So that's what I want you to take home with you tonight. And those are the two things we'll look at tonight as well. So what's the first Standard that Paul uses to determine his success in his partnership. Standard number one, Christ is preached. And you see that in verses 12 through 18. We'll go ahead and read that section. Standard number one is that Christ is preached through his partnership in the gospel. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. But what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Christ is preached in Paul's ministry, and that's what he's concerned about. That's the first standard, how he judges his success in ministry, is that Christ is preached. So we ask the question, what does it mean for pr- Christ to be preached? What does it mean for Christ to be preached? It's for him to be heralded, the gospel, the simple gospel that we heard this morning, the message of Christ being preached. Well, let's unfold how he rejoices over this. First, notice that Paul rejoices that Christ is preached even though it required suffering. Paul has joy over the proclamation of Christ even though it demanded his suffering. Paul's suffering. Anyone read a book on how to do an effective prison ministry or anyone been involved in prison ministry? Been a long time. Yeah, not many of us. But here Paul's writing us a little passage on how to do an effective prison ministry but he's one of the inmates okay he's one of the inmates he's going to tell us how his suffering led to the preaching of christ now listen here there's two ways that his suffering led to the preaching or proclamation of christ listen to these two ways the first one's in verse 13 Paul's suffering brought the gospel to the whole roman government and military do you believe that he said the whole praetorian guard and all the rest so i take that to mean that he the roman soldiers who were guarding him Heard him speaking to others, unhindered without fear, to other people who visited him. They heard the gospel, and as other guards kept on guarding him, they heard it more and more. And these guards like, hey, this guy's in chains for the way, as Mike mentioned this morning. This guy's in chains for, for Jesus. And they may have gotten a kick out of that. I don't know, but it spread throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. And when it says, and to all the rest, I take that to mean government officials and people like that. So it's spreading here in the Roman Empire. Paul's sufferings. Something that could not have happened otherwise and i believe this is fulfilling acts 23:11 where god told paul that he would make a defense before that he would testify of the gospel before caesar and this is leading up to that so paul's suffering led to this to the gospel penetrating the roman empire what else did it lead to not just the roman empire or the roman government but also to producing fearless preachers it produced fearless preachers so paul sees or they see paul here in prison they hear his reports And it helps them give an occasion to preach the word of God without fear. Fearless preachers. It says in verse 14, many of the brothers who trust in the Lord have far more confidence to speak the word of God without fear, or the word without fear. Uh, MacArthur brought up John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Most of you know that John Bunyan was a prisoner at some point in his life. And why was he a prisoner? Because he preached. Because he was a preacher. That led him to prison. I'll read you this quote. John Bunyan's preaching was so popular and so powerful and so unacceptable to leaders in the 17th century church of England. This is a church, by the way, that he was jailed in order to silence him. They jailed him so he would stop preaching. But he refused to be silent. He began to preach where? In the jail courtyard. He not only had a large audience of prisoners, but people came from outside to listen to him preach. Citizens. So Bedford and the surrounding area, they'd come to the prison every day and stand outside to hear him expound the scripture. He was silenced verbally then by being placed deep inside the jail and forbidden to preach at all. And guess what he did there? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And where did that lead to? Who has a copy of Pilgrim's Progress in your home? Okay, who has a copy for an adult and a copy for children? Who has two copies for children? Okay, okay. We all have that. It's spread the gospel in all kinds of, to all kinds of different places through those unique means. all because Paul Bunyan or, um, Paul Bunyan John Bunyan was silenced because he was preaching the gospel. His suffering led directly to the spread, the progress of the gospel. John Bunyan was a gospel partner. I'm speaking to you as someone, as we talked in FOF several weeks ago I'm speaking to you as someone who's not suffered much. But I want you to submit to God's word here and view your sufferings as a means to proclaim the gospel. How do you view your sufferings? Do you waste your sufferings? Just like I think John Piper wrote the book, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your life. He's written different things like that. Do you waste your suffering? Do you waste it on self-pity? Do you waste it on trying to figure out ways to get out of it? Or do you use it for the proclamation of the gospel? That's the question we all have to ask ourselves tonight with this passage. It directly confronts that idea in our minds. But your suffering may be clearing away, cutting that brush so other people can come and hear the gospel in different kinds of ways. So he rejoiced that the gospel was preached, that Christ was preached, even through his sufferings. Notice in verses 15 through 18, this is a curious passage. If you've never struggled through this passage, you're going to tonight. But Paul rejoiced that Christ is preached, even though it happened with mixed motives. He rejoiced that the gospel was preached and spread, even though it happened through mixed motives. This is an odd passage when you start reading it. So it produced fearless preachers, but there's two types of groups in here. Two groups of preachers, or two groups of evangelists. And let's look at those. You have the rivals. There's John Bunyan in the cell. You have the rivals and the friends. So let's look first at the rivals. They were preaching Christ out of envy and jealousy. They're preaching out of strife selfish ambition they were trying to advance their own desires they were doing it insincerely supposing that they could cause trouble for paul maybe give him a hard time they they preached with ulterior motives and they had a pretense they tried to throw up something make themselves look really good but on the inside it was all darkness these were the rivals this is a curious group of preachers why bother why bother I'm going to explain that real quick here. First of all, okay, they were not heretics. If they were heretics, what would Paul say of them? Anathema, right? He would say they're preaching another gospel, just like he did in Galatians 1. But So they're not heretics. But what were they? They were jealous troublemakers. Jealous troublemakers. Xenophon, the old ancient Greek historian, he said this. The envious are those who are annoyed only at their friends' successes. I think that describes these people. They were annoyed because Paul had success. They preached Christ, but they did it for themselves. They did it from purely selfish motives. And they tried to do that. They tried to make Paul's imprisonment harder. Maybe they thought Paul was being foolish for getting himself caught in prison. Maybe they thought, well, Paul really blew it, and now I guess we're up to take the torch. It's going to be up to us to do the right thing. But they completely overlooked that God's sovereignty was working in Paul and using him to spread the gospel. These were rivals, arrogant people. But you also had the friends. You also had the friends. They preached Christ. They did it out of goodwill. They did it in love. They did it knowing that Paul was appointed to defend the gospel, as a defender of the gospel. And they did it not in pretense, but they did it in truth. So as you look at the situation, what group are you in? Don't just automatically say, well, I'm one of the friends, because that sounds better. But think about what's going on in your heart. Are you one of the rivals? Or are you one of the friends? Here's a test. When you're preaching in your preaching classes or wherever you might be, maybe it's evangelism on campus, but do you care about your performance based on the next guy's performance? Does that bother you? Say, wow, he really, he did a good job and I blew it. Are you comparing yourself all the time like that? If so, you might be one of the rivals. Do you have an inkling to become a celebrity preacher one day? Believe me, that's possible these days. It's not going to last very long because they're going to realize that preachers are dorks and not they're not very cool and the whole celebrity thing is going to die out but right now if you want to be a celebrity preacher it's possible and the road there is very easy but is that what's in your heart also can you strive or thrive in ministry without man's approval without someone saying now that was a good job this week what about the next week what if they didn't tell you that could you keep on going test your heart this way do you take ministry engagements for money if you don't know that's possible it is it is possible um, we grew up riding bikes, teenagers. All we did was ride bikes. We developed some friendships outside of the church that way. And uh, I met one much later um, through college, and when I maybe when I was I was in seminary, and I told him what I was doing. I told him I was doing seminary and wanted to be ministry. And first thing came out of his mouth was, "Oh, I hear there's good money in that." And the sad thing is, that's true in many cases. It took me back. I don't even know how I responded, because um, I, like, well, certain circles, yes, but that, that, those are possible. It is possible to make it big and to earn some money in the ministry. It's possible. Trust me. So what group are you in? Paul backs up now. He sees the two groups. He says, "Hey, I'm not alarmed. I'm okay. I know these guys are doing it for the wrong reasons, but either way, they're preaching Christ and in that I rejoice." As he backs up. "What then only that in every way whether in pretense or truth, truth Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice." So he rejoiced not in the motive of their preaching. Listen to this, not in their motives, but in the content. Their content was Christ. How that all worked together, I think you can see it in modern-day ministry as well, where people were preaching Christ, preaching for the wrong reasons, preaching for the money, preaching for the fame. It's possible. But they're still, their content was Christ. And the story of God's sovereignty continues that what we mean for evil, God's intending for good. The rivals were doing it for the wrong reasons, but God was still using all of these mixed motives to advance his kingdom, to advance the gospel. And Paul rejoiced in that. So Paul rejoiced that Christ is preached. This marks the first standard, okay? The first standard of a successful gospel partnership or true progress in gospel partnership. What about the second? Christ is exalted. Second standard is that Christ is exalted in your ministry. Whatever your ministry might be, Christ is exalted. He's preached, and then it's responded with exaltation. Let's read verses 18 through 26, or the last part of 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. And that middle part of verse 18 is like a hinge to turn to the next section. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame In anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for, what does it say? Your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Christ is exalted in Paul's ministry, no matter what. What does it mean for Christ to be exalted? What does exaltation even mean? We sang about it tonight. What does it mean to be exalted? Another word for it is magnify. Just like you pull up a magnifying glass to see something in greater detail to enlarge it, although you can't look at Christ in the magnifying glass. It in no way does him justice, but making him bigger in your life, seeing that he's a much bigger part of your life than you even realize, magnifying him, exalting him, showing himself to be great, exaltation. So we ask the question, Is how is Christ exalted in Paul's ministry? How does this text teach us that Christ was exalted in Paul's gospel partnership? We'll take this, these verses, we'll look at 20 through 23, and then we'll see the beginning and end of this passage. These are not easy truths. These are not easy truths. Paul was ready for either. Paul was ready for either. Either what? The American Baptist Foreign Mission Society, 1814. Do you see what it says there, ready for either? And then do you see what's in the picture? What's that with smoke in the background? An altar. And then what's the ox they are standing in front of? Do you see it? A plow. He's ready for either. He's ready to be sacrificed. Or he's ready to get to work. He's ready for either. Paul was ready for either. This is the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society, 1814, co-founded by who? Adoniram Judson. And Carrie might have been involved too. Carrie was involved in Judson's life. But Judson was a co-founder who, by the way, at this point, was recently converted to Baptist theology and a baptism by immersion. Um, and there he was starting a Baptist foreign mission society. Okay, here's what I'm not calling for. I'm not calling for all the dads in the room to leave your family, and your wife and kids, and go to the foreign mission field. Okay, I'm not calling for that. I had a friend once whose dad did that, and the family was very bitter. He said, I'm going to China to be a missionary, and he left the daughter and uh, a wife there. It's a true story. I'm not asking for that, but I am telling that there's application here for all of us, application for whole families, and being ready for either, ready for either. Judson had three wives. He wasn't a polygamist, but three wives passed through his life. Anne was his first wife. They were married. They moved to the field. Judson was put in prison. Many of you, if you've heard the story, you have to bear with me but many of you probably have not. He was put in prison for quite a while, and she was pregnant during that time, and eventually the baby came, and eventually he found some favor with the jailers. So they would let her bring the baby to him and let him go out into the village in the evenings and try to get the baby nursed because the mommy couldn't do it. He's let from prison not too much longer after that. Eleven months later, she dies. Six months later, that baby dies. That's wife number one. Second wife, Sarah Boardman. She bears him eight children. Three of them died, or three of them didn't make past childhood. And then she dies, and ministry continues. Then Emily, his third wife, she leaves, she's only 29 at the time, she leaves a famous career in writing to be his wife and to go be a missionary in Burma. And then Judson gets sick and he dies at sea. Their second child together was born 10 days later. And then the baby dies. So do you see how this whole family was involved in the suffering? It wasn't just the one missionary. They all contributed to this. That's why this passage is for all of us. These stories are for all of us. They're not just for the the one guy who wants to go be a romantic missionary and leaves everything and leaves everyone he knows. This is the family being involved. Sacrifice, it's calling us all to sacrifice. Sacrifice this passage is not easy stuff so here we enter paul's dilemma here we are entering paul's dilemma what's phase one of his dilemma to live is christ but to die is gain so what would he rather do at this point he sees remaining living that's going to be christ great but dying departing that's gain. that's better so the scale is leaning that direction right now this is paul's dilemma what's phase two He said, I'd much rather be with Christ. I'd much rather be with Christ. Being with Christ tips the scale even further. Weighs it down. Entering Paul's dilemma. He says, so in essence, if I live, it's for Christ. I can proclaim him if I live. I can meet the needs of the churches. I can pray for the churches. I can disciple new converts. I can preach. I can pray. I can expose error. I can do these things. And that'll be great. And I'm willing to do it. But he says, if I depart, it's even better. I can be with Christ. That's better by far, as my dad loves, than Asby. Just kidding. Or very much better, than Asby says, to be with Christ. So, Paul, in his mind, is in a big dilemma. Now, is he contemplating suicide? Would Paul contemplate suicide? Let's get real. I read a journal article that asked the question did Paul contemplate suicide? And no, he didn't contemplate suicide, but he was ready for either. Ready for either you have to keep asking yourself the question, are you ready for either? Are you in the same dilemma? How else could Christ be exalted in Paul's ministry? How else can Paul, could Christ be exalted in Paul's ministry? Next notice that Paul rejoices that Christ is exalted, and this may come as a surprise, but in his continuing ministry, Christ will be exalted in Paul's continuation of his ministry, continuing on in the work of the gospel. So what tipped the scales? What tipped the scales? What made Paul convinced that he would stay for the Philippians' sake? It's the needs of others. The needs of others. He'd wanted to do what was best for the Philippians. What does verse 24 say? He said, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. To remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your needs. I'm looking outside myself now, and I'm seeing what's going to be best for you. And I think that I when I know that I'm going to stay with you for your needs, and I'm going to continue for your progress and your joy in the faith. That's what tips the scales. Now, we do need to look real quickly at how Paul could be sure that he'd be released from imprisonment. What does, your, what does your Bible say in that verse, in verse 19? Does it use the word salvation or deliverance? If you have the KJV, it says salvation. If you have the NASB or basically any other, any other translation, it'll say deliverance. But it's our regular word for salvation. Our being saved by grace. Is that what Paul is talking about here? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is that what Paul is talking about here? We'll have to dive into some answers. A few reasons why he is talking about release from prison. Being released from his current imprisonment. A few clues. Verse 25 says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in your faith. So Paul says right from the beginning... I know I'm going to continue. I know I'm not going to die yet. I know that I'm going to continue for you, for your sake. And then, if you look at chapter two, verse twenty-four, he also says, "I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly." So again, he expresses that confidence that he will be coming to visit them. Philemon, verse twenty-two, which I believe is written around the same time during the same imprisonment, he says to the Philipp, to the um, to Philemon and his Uh, church there he says at the same time also prepare me a lodging for I hope that there's the through your prayers uh, phrase again hope that through your prayers I will be given to you and also I don't believe it's talking about his salvation his theological salvation because since when is Paul going to be saved through the Philippians prayers no that doesn't fit his theology so it doesn't make sense but the Philippians prayers could lead to his deliverance from prison And that's what Paul is confident in. And what else? The support of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, I think the Roman government's going to eventually let him go because they know why he's there. They know why he's in bonds. They know he's there for the gospel. And they know that he didn't commit any crimes. All the the trials that Mike's been preaching about, you see the falsely alleged, false allegations going against Paul over and over again. And after a while, you see, wow, these guys are just making up stories now. They're all made up stories. So Paul knows that Christ is going to be exalted through his continuing ministry. Christ will be exalted through his coming again to the Philippians. And how would his ministry exalt Christ? We ask that question now. How would Paul's ministry exalt Christ? And you see that in verses 25 and 26. We could say that Paul would directly help the Philippians their progress and join the faith. Paul would be there to directly help them keep progressing in the gospel he'd be there to preach to them he'd be there to help them to pray for them to meet their needs to do what he's been doing all along and discipleship how else will christ be exalted in the ministry or in his return to them second thing is that they would exalt christ they would see the circumstances that paul has been through and they would give glory to christ say wow because of what paul has done we're not giving glory to paul now we're giving glory to christ and in that they're going to exalt when Pastor Mike first came to uh, Tampa, back from seminary, uh, before we started here, um, there was a, a group of troublemakers. After every sermon he preached, they would go and praise Mike for his for his sermons, say, "Wow, that was a great job." And after a while, they caught on to the fact that Mike said, "You know, give God the glory. Don't give me the glory. Give God the glory." And these uh, perverse individuals kept doing it. And one time, I'm not gonna say who it was. One even bowed at his feet. <laughs> Trying to get a reaction out of Mike. But he always said the same thing. Give God the glory. Don't give me the glory. They were joking, by the way. But giving God the glory. Not giving the preacher the glory. Not giving... I know we keep saying, talking about Paul Washer the glory. But don't give Paul Washer the glory. He would not want that. In fact, I believe he even said that he left the church because people kept coming from far distances just to hear him. So he says, I've got to get out of here and do a different ministry. So leaving that. Don't give the minister of the glory, giving Christ the glory, exalting Christ because he's the one progressing the gospel and is using instruments to do it, not giving the instrument praise, but the creator of the universe praise. This is how Christ would be exalted in Paul's ministry, and this is how we want Christ to be exalted in our ministries as well. Whatever they might be, however small we might think they may be, but giving Christ the exaltation in our ministries. So how do you define gospel progress? We saw how Paul defined it. He defined progress or success in his ministry in terms of the proclamation and exaltation of Christ. That's it. Proclaiming Christ, exalting Christ. That's how we knew his ministry was on track. That's how we knew he was in the right place and God was using him because Christ was being preached and that Christ was being exalted. That's how he could define his success. Those were his standards. Those were his measurements of knowing that the gospel was progressing. So as you participate in the ministry of the church, the ministry of the gospel, how do you determine determine success? Have you considered these two features as you try to define, okay, am I really doing ministry in the church? Am I really doing ministry the way Christ would have me? Am I doing a God-centered ministry or am I doing a man-centered ministry? Have you ever thought about these two things as you've evaluated that? Commitment, commitment, a word on commitment. I know you're thinking, okay, every time I come to Grace Bible Church, they're asking for more commitment out of me. I could go to the church down there, and they're not going to ask me for any kind of commitment. Okay, I'm just going to come in, just like Mike said this morning, we'll do the egg drop and everything, and then we'll go. We'll have our New Jordans, as you saw the sign out there, the New Jordans, and then the we we can find, and all the candy, and then we'll go up and run. They're not asking for any commitment out of me. But the Bible is constantly calling us to commitment. It's constantly calling us to commitment. Do you want to be called a legalist? I'll tell you how to be called a legalist. Call someone to commitment. Say, be committed, and you'll be called a legalist. Is that what legalism is? I'd say no. But calling us to commitment is what the scriptures would have us do. Being committed to commitment. These to these standards of measure. So I'm going to look at two starting points, just two brief starting points, just a way to start applying this passage. Okay, nothing crazy here. Just a way to start applying this Two starting points. Make a commitment to proclaim and exalt Christ, starting with the small things in life. Make a commitment to proclaim and exalt Christ in in your life, even in the small things. And that's in quotes, because there is no small things in your life. They are all matter. So your studies, do your, do, your student, do your fellow students know that you're a man or a woman of integrity? What about your home and your family? You know, you tell your kids, sit down. I'm trying to give you a Bible lesson right now, okay? Do they see you exalting Christ? Do they see it? Do they see it in the way you're patient with them, and the way you love them? Or does your spouse see it? Or do your roommates see that? Start in the small areas. Your business relations, to make it successful in the business world, Pretty much you're expected to be a liar. Is that true? Or at least twist the truth every now and then. Very true. They ask you to do that. But avoiding that. Exalting Christ in your business dealings. In your friendships. Do your friends know that you're someone who will bend over backwards for, for them? Or are they that kind of person like, well, I can't really count on him to, to help out in this case. But are you exalting Christ in your relationships with each other? Are you a servant? In your conversations, your entertainment... Even the way you evangelize, are you exalting Christ in all those areas? And then number two, consider how the proclamation and exaltation of Christ lead to doing what's best for others. Consider how these things, proclaiming Christ, exalting Christ, consider how they lead to doing what's best, not for yourself, but for others. And this is Paul's mindset. What does it mean to put Christ at the center of your life? Anyone heard that phrase before? Put Christ at the center. Put Christ at the center of your marriage. Say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that. That's an absolutely meaningless phrase these days. No one knows what that means, to put Christ at the center. That means you just keep on doing everything the way you've been doing it. That's the, but what does it really mean? What are we getting at when we say, put Christ at the center? It is an important phrase, and we do need to understand it. We do need to apply it, putting Christ at the center. Because this is what we learn from Paul, and this is what we learn from the scriptures. Putting Christ at the center Means following Christ as your master. And what does following him as your master entail? It means following what he's demanded of you. And I use the word demanded on purpose. It's not just a suggestion. He's demanded our lives. He's demanded that we lay down our lives for each other, to sacrifice for each other, to pick up your cross and follow him. So what does it mean to put Christ at the center of your life? It means you're self sacrificial strategically that is not just beating yourself over the back and walking around America with a cross on your back that's not what we're talking about but laying down your life for others that's what it means to put Christ at the center of your life it's not just this weird fuzzy feeling oh Christ is at the center of my life now and he's at the center of my marriage and I feel so much better about myself if you're not laying down your lives for other people then Christ is not at the center of your life Christ was at the center of Paul's life and it led him to rejoice in the exaltation and the proclamation of Christ. And we need to follow his example because it's laid down here in scripture through the Holy Spirit. And we're all sitting in this room and we all have to make a choice of whether or not we're going to apply this passage tonight or not. We are all faced with that choice now. So we have to pray for the Holy Spirit's power to help us apply this, to put Christ first and his exaltation, his proclamation and everything we do from the small things to the big things. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and we love your word. It tells us hard things. It tells us things that sometimes are difficult to receive, sometimes difficult to understand. But Lord, I believe this passage is clear to us tonight, and I believe what it calls us to is clear. It calls us to make exalting you, proclaiming you as the standards of our success and sacrificing ourselves for each other to keep progressing the message of the gospel, to keep making disciples. I pray that you'll help all of us to examine our hearts tonight. I pray that you convict us of our sin. I pray that we would be willing to submit to you, our master, as your slaves. I pray that we'd exalt you. I pray that we reclaim you this week in our families, in our jobs, everywhere we might be. I pray you'll give us the grace to do that we're feeble, fickle people, and we need your help. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And you are dismissed.